Well, Exodus chapter number 32, we've been in this series on prayer. How should I pray? And we're going to start talking about that next Sunday. But the last several weeks we've been talking about uh, why we should pray. Because I think that a big hurdle to Christians' prayer lives is this idea of whether or not even works in the first place. And so that first week we addressed that question. Does prayer really work? And then we answered it. Well, prayer does work if you work it. It does. The problem's not with prayer. The problem is with the one praying or not praying. And and then we talked about the question last week. Why isn't God answering my prayer? If you say prayer works and I'm praying, why isn't God answering? Why isn't God responding? We gave you eight possible reasons and we really dove into those this morning in our connection groups. Um, you can go back and listen to that on YouTube or on, on the church podcast if you'd like to do so. And, and today we're, we're talking about this, this question. Do my prayers change God's mind? Have you ever wondered that? How much your prayers really affect God's plans? Do what you and I say to God in prayer convince him to do something that he was not otherwise planning to do? Now, the simple answer, and you hang with me, the simple answer seems to be no. We don't command God to do anything. We don't offer some kind of reasoning to him that he hadn't thought of or that makes him revise his plans. Someone wisely said, has it ever dawned on you that nothing has ever dawned on God? Meaning, God never responds to our prayers by asking, oh, I forgot about that. Thanks for the reminder, I needed that. I think I'll do it. See, God's purposes are eternal and his wisdom is infinite. You know what that means? He knows the end from the beginning and he knows it all. He's never surprised. He's never taken back. He's never thwarted. Even if in your prayers you have this amazing idea, God's already thought about it. But that simple no answer leads to this difficult tension, this question. I think it can actually rid Christians of motivation to pray. It's this. If God is going to do what he's going to do anyway, regardless of whether I pray or not, what's the point of praying? Why make the effort to get up earlier, put down our phones or turn off the TV to speak to him when it makes no difference because everything's already pretty much mapped out? That's a fair concern, isn't it? I want to speak to that by going back in history a few thousand years. In Exodus 32, God's people have been rescued from slavery in Egypt and now under God's leadership, or under Moses' leadership rather, they're on their way to the promised land. At this point in their journey, in Exodus 32, they've stopped to worship at a place called Mount Sinai. Moses, who's their leader, is up on top of the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments. He's also receiving the designs for the tabernacle where God will dwell with his people. Pretty serious business going on between God and Moses. However, Moses is gone longer than the people expected. So you know what they do? They jump to a ridiculous conclusion. They think Moses and God have now abandoned them. Look at verse 1 of chapter 32. And when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down out of the mount, 
the people gathered themselves together unto Aaron and said unto him, up, make us gods. You see that little G God. That's not the true God. It's false gods, which shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we what not what has become of him. They said, Moses, is, he's, he's abandoned us. He's left us. And if he's left us, God's left us. So we got to figure out a new God. Now, this this response makes no sense, given the fact that God has just delivered them from the most powerful empire of their day through 10 supernatural plagues. And then by splitting apart a sea, plus sustained them on their journey with this miraculous bread and meat falling from the sky each day. Yet they still decide that they need a new, more capable God. And so they take off their jewelry. I'm summarizing what happens next. They, they take off their jewelry, the very jewelry that God had caused the Egyptians to give them on their way out of Egypt. And they use that jewelry, God's provision to them, to mold a new God for themselves that they called a golden calf. This golden calf would be something they carry around for protection. And worse, their worship of this new God descends into an all-night party of sorts. It was an absolute carnal, sinful disaster. Meanwhile, back at the top of the mountain, God comes to Moses. And he speaks to him rather frankly about what's going on with his people and the golden calf. Look at verse 7 through 10. And the Lord said unto Moses, Go, get thee down, for thy people which thou broughtest out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. They have made them a molten calf and have worshipped it and have sacrificed thereunto. And said, These be thy gods, O Israel, which have brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said unto Moses, watch this, I have seen this people. And behold, it is a stiff-necked or stubborn people. Now, therefore, let me alone, leave me alone, that my wrath may wax hot against them. And that I may consume them and I will make of thee a great nation. Now, I don't know about you, but this sounds like a pretty firm plan from God. Moses, my mind's made up. Move out of my way. I'm done with these people. And look how Moses responds. He reasons with God to change his mind. Verse 11. And Moses besought the Lord. He prayed to the Lord, his God said, Lord. Why doth thy wrath wax hot against thy people, which thou hast brought forth out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Wherefore should the Egyptians speak and say, for mischief did he bring them out and to slay them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from thy fierce wrath and repent of this evil against thy people. Remember Abraham, Isaac. And Israel, thy servants, to whom thou swearest by thine own self, and saidest unto them, I will multiply your seed as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have spoken of will I give unto your seed, and they shall inherit it forever. I don't know about you, but if the God of the universe told me that, frankly, what he's going to do, I'd probably just go along with it. You know what I mean? You ever had, like, when you're growing up in high school, like a mean football coach or something? And you knew their plan was just terrible. But they said it so emphatically that he left no room for discussion. You get what I'm saying? 
And if you're a smart football player, you're just like, yes, sir. Yes, sir. If I'm Moses, I'm, I'm probably just saying, aye, aye, captain. You got a plan. But Moses boldly says to God, God, these are not my people. They're yours. Have you forgotten what you said you'd do for Abraham's family? Well, this is Abraham's family. And your name is on the line here because this was your promise. It wasn't mine. And Moses says, in essence, God, stop. God, change your mind. God, don't do this. And then follows, in my opinion, the four most jarring words in the book of Exodus. Verse 14. And the Lord repented. The word repented means he changed his mind. The writer of Exodus, who is Moses, would have us believe that God was intending to do one thing in verse 7 until Moses persuaded him to do the opposite in verses 11 through 13. What makes this even more confusing is that Moses wrote elsewhere that God doesn't repent. He doesn't change his mind. Like in Numbers 23, 19, God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. In one place, Moses said, God changed his mind. In another, he tells us that God doesn't change his mind. Which is it? It seems like a contradiction that we have to resolve today. But it's not. It's actually more of a tension we have to manage than a contradiction we have to solve. Now, this is more of an oral argument today, so you're just going to have to think with me and follow me. It's true that in Exodus 32, God seems to change his course of action based on Moses' prayer. But don't miss that it's God who actually creates the moment of crisis. It's God who set up the circumstances to keep Moses on the mountain. It's God who set up the circumstances to give Moses a chance to argue with him. It's God who tells Moses what's going on at the foot of the mountain. Moses had no idea until God told him. It's God who made the promise that Moses quotes back to him in prayer. In other words, God placed Moses into a situation in which Moses would see the problem with his people, remember the promises of God for his people, and then intervene in prayer on behalf of his people by praying those promises back to God. I want to say that again. God placed Moses sovereignly into this situation in which Moses would see a problem with his people. He would then remember the promises of God for his people. Then he would go pray back those promises back to God in prayer and ask him to intervene. There's two key truths that are brought together. Watch here. First, God's plans for the world are unchanging. Second, our prayers are instrumental in the fulfillment of God's plans for the world. So there's this tension here. This means two things in our text. First, God had mercy on the Israelites. Why? Because that was actually part of his unchanging plan for his people. But it's also true that God had mercy on the Israelites Because Moses boldly implored him not to destroy them. Get this. God in his sovereignty 
set Moses up to pray this prayer so that through Moses' prayer, God's plan could be fulfilled. Did you get it? God set the stuff up. He's in control. He set Moses up to pray this prayer so that through Moses' prayer, God's plan could be fulfilled. And you may ask, but what if Moses chose not to pray this day? What if he chose to go along with God's plan? Would God have still saved his people, showed mercy on them? Or would God have set someone else up to pray for them instead of Moses? Does this make your head spin a bit? It's actually not meant to trip us up. Maybe a 19th century theologian by the name of A.A. Hodge can help us. He's sarcastic here. Does God know the day that you'll die? Yes. Has he appointed that day? Yes, he has. Can you do anything to change that day? No. Then why do you eat? To live. What happens if you don't eat? You die. Then to be sarcastic, then if you don't eat and die, would that be the day God had appointed for you to die? You know what his point is? Quit asking stupid questions and just eat. You know why? Because eating is the preordained way that God has appointed for staying alive. In just the same way, prayer is a preordained way that God has appointed for executing his will on earth. Just as we eat today because it keeps us alive, even while we simultaneously know we can't change the appointment date of our death, so we pray because it's the means by which God does his work on earth. Just as God has hardwired our bodies in his sovereignty to run on food, so he has hardwired his purposes so that they are actualized by prayer. See, this story in the Bible is not an invitation to become obsessed about the mysteries of God's plans for the world that we can't wrap our heads around. No, this passage is an invitation to consider how God, like he did with Moses, has put you into a place to intervene and to pray so that his plans can be executed. David Platt put it this way. When we pray, we take our God-given place and we use our God-ordained privilege to participate with God in the accomplishment of his purposes on the planet. Praying this way is not just a part of our Christian life. It's our primary calling. One of the reasons God saved you is so that you could pray. He appointed you to ask him for things he wanted wanted to give. Back to where we started. Do my prayers change God's mind? Here's my answer. Short, yes and no. But in a statement. God sovereignly puts you in a situation to see a problem. And change it through your prayers. Let that sink in. That's the answer to that question. It's the best answer I can give you. God sovereignly puts you in a situation like he did Moses. To see a problem. Become bothered by the problem. Burdened by the problem. To where you will boldly go to his throne and implore him to change it. And he's sitting up there in heaven all along saying, my plan is to do this. But the means through which that plan will be accomplished is a Christian being put in that situation, seeing that problem, getting burdened about it, and then asking me to change it.
Think about your own circumstances. Look at all the problems you see around you. The broken relationships. The people far from grace. The dysfunctional situations. The hurting, the abused, the injustice. God put you where you are on purpose. To see those problems. To remember his promises. And to pray for him to work powerfully. Hear me, Christian, wherever you are, your workplace, your community, your family, your team, your peer group, your neighborhood, your church, your connection group, you're not there by accident, but by divine appointment. You're God's ambassador. You're his representative in that place. And you have the responsibility to pray. We typically want to escape hard places. We want to get out of places where there are problems and difficult people. But maybe God puts you there as part of the solution. Maybe God has you there so you can pray his plans into action. That's what happened with a man named Nehemiah. If you've studied the book of Nehemiah, then the first chapter talks about how he's going about his life as the king's cupbearer. Like that, that's a risky job because people tried to assassinate the kings of that day by poisoning their drink or their food. And so he knew that he had to taste test all of this food and drink before they served to the king in order to protect the king. So he knew that he was at risk. But at the same time, it was a really comfortable job. I mean, he had a nice bed and he had a nice room and he had a nice salary. And here his brethren come to him and say, hey. Back over here in Jerusalem, the walls are completely torn down. Our our hometown, our homeland, it needs to be rebuilt. It's a mess. There's no protection there. And God put Nehemiah in that situation to hear that news. And Nehemiah let it travel 18 inches from his head to his heart. And it didn't become a problem for somebody else. It became a burden for him to bear. And he was bothered by it. And you know what Nehemiah did? He prayed for four months about it. Four months, he knew God put me in this situation to hear this burden, to be bothered by it. So I must pray that God's plans will be executed. And little did Nehemiah know that God's plans are going to be executed through him. He prayed and God said, you're the guy. Go back and rebuild. And in 52 days, the problem was fixed. Now, let me ask you today. Do you see any problems in any of the places In which God has placed you. Do you see any problems? Do you see problems at your workplace? That frustrate you? You see problems in your community that frustrate you? You see problems in your family that frustrate you? You see problems in your church that frustrate you? You see problems that, you know, they don't just frustrate you because they're, they're these internal conflicts, they're personality quirks, they're, they're personal hurts. But, but, but maybe some things that, that God has allowed you to see and place around you bother you because they bother him. It's genuine sin. It's injustice. It's irresponsibility. It's not right. Has God, has God allowed you to be bothered by those things? Then consider this, maybe God has sovereignly placed you in that situation so that you, as his representative, can see the problem and change it through your prayers. 
Truly understanding God's sovereignty means that we understand that God has put us in a particular place as an instrument of his blessing. And that his work on earth flows through channels. And those channels are often our faith-filled prayers and faith-filled obedience. Church, we need to learn to live with the awareness that God is always at work around us. And he never puts us anywhere by accident. His unchanging plans are unfolding all around us. And he just might give us the privilege of being instrumental in how that happens. That's an amazing privilege. Here's the good news. You don't need to be super eloquent. Moses stuttered. You don't have to have a perfect track record to make a difference through prayer. Moses had an anger problem. You don't have to know a ton of Bible verses. You just need to live with the awareness that our sovereign God has intentionally put you into situations to see a problem and to release his power through prayer and obedience. Here's what it boils down to. Wherever you are, pray. That's it. Does does my prayers change God's mind? Yes and no. He's got unchanging plans. No. But yet he uses your prayers as an instrument to execute those plans. Yes. So wherever God has placed you today, it's not by accident. The things that he's allowing you to encounter and see and that bother you. That doesn't happen so you can sit down, get on Facebook and tell the world how much it bothers you. That's not prayer. He doesn't put you in a situation so you can go to your coworker and gossip about your boss. That's not prayer. He doesn't put you in this state or in this country so that you can meet at a coffee shop or wherever with your buddies and talk about how terrible the United States is now and it wasn't that way 40 years ago. That's not prayer. He didn't place you in a church that is far from perfect and still learning and still growing and oftentimes misses the mark. He hasn't placed you in this place so that you could see all its imperfections and wish it were better. He's placed you here so that through your prayers you can make a difference. Don't complain, gossip, bellyache, get naked. Naked. Don't do that either. That was a slip. I was going to say negative. This is what happens when I get off script. (laughs) Where do I go from there? Every head bowed and every eye closed. Now, don't get naked either. That's part of God's sovereign plan. Keep on your clothes. Crying out loud, I'm going to put that on the front door of Walmart. Don't get naked. Y'all know what I mean? We don't have a beach, but we have Walmart. (laughs) Pastor David, you want to preach the rest of the sermon? (laughs) No? Not interested? Okay. All right. All right, let's bring it back down. Truthfully, I could, I could kind of branch off and apply this, this, what I think is a profound truth in all kinds of ways. 
as, as a preacher, as a pastor, I, I, I'm tasked with, with the responsibility of taking the Bible from thousands of years ago, a story, and then bridging it to something that we can apply tomorrow, on Monday. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to really get narrow in my application here. Because this is something to where this scripture passage applies like immediately. And it has to do with the vote that will take place on August 2nd in the state of Kansas. I want you to hear me out. God has sovereignly placed our church in the state of Kansas. And I believe we should identify the way in which our state needs the mercy of God. And we should pray for it. Just as Moses prayed for God to show mercy to Israel, we should pray for for God to show mercy to Kansas. In 2019, our state Supreme Court ruled to remove the legal foundation for all existing laws that permit basic regulations on abortion. Laws that prevent babies from being aborted up to the moment of birth. These are good laws. Laws that require the abortion industry to protect women with important clinic health and safety standards. Laws that prevent taxpayer funded abortion. Laws that that prevent extreme procedures such as partial birth and live dismemberment abortions. That's why Value Them Both has led the charge to amend this part of our state constitution. If this doesn't pass, if Christians don't stand up, I should say Bible believers don't stand up and vote yes on August 2nd, Kansas will become a permanent destination for abortions. Already 50% of abortions in Kansas are performed on out-of-state patients. And if the amendment isn't passed, that number will skyrocket just like it has in California and New York. The Kansas City Star says that if this amendment isn't passed, abortions in Kansas could increase by 1,000%. That should concern you. This is the most important vote in my state in my lifetime. And probably in the history of our state. I want to be clear. I am not making a political statement. You know why? Because abortion is not Republican and it's not Democrat. This has nothing to do with a particular candidate that's running for office or that is already in office. You will never, ever hear me tell you who to vote for. This has everything to do with what the Bible says about life. And how life begins at conception. And how that every life is created by God in the image of God for the purposes of bringing glory to God. And not giving babies in the womb a choice to be alive is in direct violation to what the word of God teaches. Now I realize there are always objections to this from the pro-choice or pro-abortion side. People may say, well, the baby's a part of, of the woman's body. And we need to respect her right to privacy and sovereignty over her body. And I agree, the right to... To privacy over our bodies is precious. But here's the thing. The baby is not a part of her body. The baby is intimately attached to her body for a period of time. Yes, but it's not, it's not her body. 
How do I know? Well, Scripture, this is my absolute truth. This this means more to me than, than the Constitution does. Scripture presents the preborn child, preborn, as its own person. Psalms 139 says that in the womb, God knew me by name as a person. Look at it. Psalms 139, go study it. He says, in my mother's womb, I was fearfully and wonderfully made, knit together according to the plan of God with his purpose for me already in mind. He talked about me before I came out of her. I was a person. Someone may say, but it's still in the mother's body. Yes. But we all know that our rights over our bodies are not absolute as far as the law is concerned. For instance, prostitution is illegal in most states. And I don't know anywhere in the U.S. where you can legally pour hard drugs into your body just because it's your body. Your rights to your body stop precisely at that place where they begin to affect someone else's. That's exactly what's happening to the preborn. Others say, well, saying life begins at conception is a matter of opinion. And you shouldn't force your opinion on others. But we're not in the realm of opinion here. We're in the realm of biology and scripture. But would you hear me out, even if you might be unclear on this and aren't convinced that personhood begins at conception? Hear me out. Can I ask you a question? Shouldn't she just err on the side of life? Think about it. If you and a buddy go hunting in the woods and you hear a rustling in the bushes and you're uncertain as to whether it's your hunting partner or a deer, morality and common sense dictate that you don't pull the trigger given the potential risk of murder. Any sane person is going to err on the side of life. And even if you aren't certain about biology, even if you haven't bought into scripture, don't you enjoy being alive? Doesn't that make sense with a preborn baby? Even if you aren't convinced of all this, shouldn't you err on the side of letting that baby live? Would you hear me? On the authority of scripture, that little human life. That little person, regardless of how they got there, when it's no bigger than a speck, when it's no bigger than the size of a period at the end of a sentence, that little person is still made in the image of God. That speck, that little speck, has more value than all the planets and stars in space. It has a soul made in the image of God. That Jesus died for. And that has an eternal future. And as Bible believers, we should do what we can to ensure its protection. This is a real problem in our state. And God has sovereignly placed us here to do something about it. That's why our church supports both pregnancy centers in our town. Grace Place and Birthline. That's why I'm challenging Christians here today to vote yes on August 2nd. It's not about cramming this down people's throats. It's not about picking fights. It's not about acting arrogant about it. It's about standing on truth and doing so humbly. Humbly. That's why I'm inviting all of you 
all of you this morning to pray that God's plans for our state and this amendment will be fulfilled. That God would show mercy to us. That God and his grace would preserve what regulations we currently have on abortion that at least offer some protection to mothers and babies. Beyond this particular issue that I've chosen for application today, I want every believer in here to really stop and think about the situations that God has sovereignly placed you in during this season of your life. God might have placed you there on purpose so that you could see a problem, fill a problem, and change it through your prayers. Maybe you need to stop wishing you were in an easier place. Wishing you were in a more comfortable place. Wishing you were in a place with less problems. Maybe you need to stop trying to escape the environment God's placed you in and instead pray about the environment God's placed you in. See, if Moses' prayers was used to save the lives of an entire nation, your prayers can do the same. So wherever God has placed you, pray. Pray. And we're going to do that today. We're going to open the altars for God's people to come and pray. And if if you can't think about a personal situation in which you need to start praying about more than you gripe about, then here's what you can do. You can come pray about this. And here's my commitment to you as your pastor. Or maybe if you're just a regular tender, it's, it's the person you rely on me to feed you every week and I'm, I'm privileged to do so. If you have any questions about this, if you struggle to reconcile some of this in your mind based on maybe how you were brought up, based on what you were taught, based on some things you've read, I would love to sit down and talk about it. I would love that. I would love that. I think it's, it's kind of being a bully to stand behind the pulpit and to herald something potentially contra, contra, uh, controversial and then not offer myself to go and eat, drink coffee, eat lunch, and talk about it. That's not, that's not fair to you. So if there's something you can't reconcile about it, you're struggling with it, or you have family members that, that, that if you even say anything about this, they'll just think you're the most awful person in all the world and you want to know how to navigate those conversations, I would love to talk to you about that. I'm not trying to, to, to just, you know, be belligerent today. I, I want to be reasonable. But listen, folks, the Bible tells us what life is and how much that God values it. And we should do the same whether or not people agree with us or not. It's the Bible that matters. And that's my burden. I want to invite all Christians, Bible believers who are passionate about this. Why don't you come pray? Come pray. Maybe God's going to use our prayers as an instrument to execute his will on August the 2nd. Wouldn't that be great to be a part of that? Well, let's start that process.